Dear Lord, I just thank you for who you are. I just praise you for this word that you've given us and that you are a God that is absolutely transcendent and all-powerful over all things in creation and that you are the only one who truly knows everything and how everything works and can truly reveal history to us in the way that it needs to be correctly understood and then infuse that history into our own lives and shape it and point it and direct it towards you and the kingdom of God. And I also praise you that you are such a loving and relational God that you chose to actually take the time to give us this word. And so we just ask the Holy Spirit to come in here tonight um, to drive away the anxieties, the stress, and the problems of life away for a moment as we dive into your word. Speak to us clearly. Um, hide this in our heart so that when we go back out into the world, um, we will be equipped um, all the more with new things that the Holy Spirit has to tell us to change us, grow us, help others, and deal with our problems. In Jesus' name, amen. Numbers. So Numbers is obviously a part of the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the First Testament. And so when we get into Numbers, the, the word Numbers um, actually comes from the Greek. The Greeks named it, well, the, the Jewish Greeks, the, the Jews who were speaking Greek and influenced by the Greek at that time, named it Numbers because there are two census in the book of Numbers, one at the beginning and one at the end, where they're counting how many people are in this the, the nation of Israel. So they named it Numbers, the numbering of the people. But the original title of the book is In the Wilderness. That's what the original Jews, the original Israelites named it because the entire book takes place in the wilderness. Typically speaking, until you get to like judges and stuff, the Hebrew title is usually more accurate. Um, it's not until you get to judges that things start getting on the same page. This book, anybody remember what was the first word at the beginning of Exodus? And... Remember, so the first, it's a vivictol, and a vivictol is a way of just saying, and then, and then, and then. And so basically the book starts with and, meaning that Exodus is continuing the story of Genesis. It's not meant to be seen as a separate book. And the first word of Leviticus is? And. Remember, this is all in Hebrew. The English doesn't do that. I wish it did. That would be cool. It would actually ask people to ask more questions. Um, so the first word of Leviticus was also and, because it's a continuation of the story. And the first word of Numbers is and, because it's a continuation of the story. It is also and, and so it is picking up exactly where Leviticus left off. So the setting is, uh, remember, God came, God displayed himself as the all-powerful, sovereign creator of the world as he created the world, and he created everything on every single day, therefore, he is the only sovereign God over everything, unlike the pagan gods who created all different things, and therefore they can only control one little thing in the way that they think, not in reality. And so God created everything, and he created man to be in his image, humanity, man and woman to be in his image. He put them in the garden, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and to expand the garden, to expand the garden and make it bigger, because he wanted them to join him in finishing the creation of the world, so to speak. Because that's what God does. He partners with his children like parents partner with their children. And so he says, partner with me. And Adam and Eve decided to say, no, 
we're not going to obey your definition of right and wrong. We're going to obey our definition of right and wrong. And they decided that eating from the tree and getting wisdom from the tree was better than getting wisdom from God, which basically flushed humanity down the toilet and their sinful nature. And so this led to a whole series of conflicts. So God picks one man out of the horrible, evil world and Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to personally bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world. In other words, I'm going to bless you so that you can continue to expand the garden. And so he did that. And he began to grow this family, Abraham's family, the patriarchs, Jacob, or Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and Joseph. And then eventually he went into slavery. So that was the first great moment in human history was the choosing of Abraham to be a family that God would use to redeem the rest of the world. The second great event in human history that the Bible talks about more than any other event is the Exodus. So in the book of Exodus, God comes to these people who are numerous fulfilling the promises of God, but they don't have their own land yet. And so he redeems them, saves them, delivers them out of the Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai. And Exodus and Mount Sinai are often seen as the same event um, in, in Israelite history because they were saved from their slavery to the law. That's the whole point. It's not that salvation is getting saved from something and then you're free to do whatever you want. Salvation is being saved from something into something. And so they were saved from their bondage to Pharaoh and into their bondage to Yahweh. The difference is that Yahweh is the all-powerful God who's worthy of their worship, and he's the only God that loves them and actually is willing to save them. And he's good, and he has their interests in mind. So that's the second great event in Israelite history. Then he brings in Leviticus. and Leviticus, he begins to teach them how they can become righteous, how they can become clean, because they've been defiled. Because one of the worst the first horrific, well, actually the, the second, the first horrific sin of humanity is the fall. The second horrific sin of Israel is the golden calf. So they worship the golden. So God is doing these great things, creation and then saving them from Egypt and humanity are doing these horrible things, sinning against them in the garden and then rebelling in the golden calf. And so they lose the right to be the chosen people. But through God's forgiveness, he continues to keep them as the chosen people, but they're defiled. So even though they've been forgiven, even though he's restored them, they're still defiled with sin and corrupted. So the end of Exodus ends with Moses and the people could not go into the tabernacle, the place that God dwelt. And the reason they couldn't go there was because of their sin. So Leviticus begins with teaching them how to become clean. And the whole book of Leviticus is how do I become clean? How do I become righteous? How do I become right with God? And so then that brings us to Numbers, which then Numbers begins with, and God spoke to Moses in the tent of the tabernacle. Because now that they've cleansed themselves in the book of Leviticus with the Day of Atonement, which is chapter 16 of Leviticus, now they're clean and they're able to enter into the tabernacle. Does that make sense? So that's kind of where we are. So basically the patriarchs are four generations of human history, about 100 to 150 years worth of human history. 
Then they go into slavery, and that covers about three, 400 years of history. They weren't enslaved the entire 400 years, but their time in Egypt was about 400 years. So God then goes into Egypt and delivers them, and it takes them about three, two months to get to Mount Sinai. They are at Mount Sinai for a total of one year, about 10 months. So they're there about 10 months, so it's a year total from Egypt to Mount Sinai being there. They received three major things at Mount Sinai. They received the law, which is how they become right with God and they obey God. They received the tabernacle. This is how they dwell with God and worship God, and they atone for their sins. And then they received the sacrificial system, and that's how they actually cleanse themselves and atone for their sins. So now that they have these three things, the law and the tabernacle given to them in Exodus, and the sacrificial system given to them in Leviticus, now they're ready to go into the world. Now they're ready to enter into the promised land. And so that's the setting here. Israel now has an ability to be with God. They know what's required of them to live a right life so they can stay with God. And when they sin, they know how to cleanse themselves so they can come back to God. So the entire last two books was focused on their relationship with God. So God, through the testings of the wilderness, is showing them that they need him. And then he teaches them how to dwell with them, how to stay right with him, and how to become right again when they screw up and they sin. Because the most important thing that they need to get is if they're going to go to the promised land, they need to understand that God is the most important thing in their life. And so now, in the book of Numbers, they're going to get a few more laws, and then God is going to launch them out to the promised land, which is going to take about 11 days to get there. So they've been about a year getting from Egypt and being at Mount Sinai, and now they've got 11 more days, and they're going to receive the thing that all the patriarchs in Genesis and all of Israel in Exodus have been longing for more than anything, their own land. They have been dreaming for their own land, and God has promised them, I will give you a land. And they knew exactly what land it was because God told Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis. And so, and you would think after four, five, six hundred years, God has not honored that promise yet. Yet he has honored so many other promises that they know they can trust him to honor that. Just like we have not been honored, God has not honored his promise to us to perfectly redeem us without any sin and to be in his presence yet. Yet he has honored so many other promises that we can all all wait and we can all look forward to that. And that's already not yet. I already have so much from God that I can trust him for the not yet. And so that's kind of where they are. They're in the wilderness, which is kind of like our lives, and they're between redemption and glorification, stepping into the presence of God in his land. And so that's kind of where we are. Now, Israel's finally being obedient. They were were great. And then the golden calf came along, and they were completely disobedient. And they got their act together. Okay, It's kind of like when you ground your children, and they can keep it together for a few more hours. And so they've been doing everything right. They built the tabernacle right. They did the sacrificial system right. They're doing everything right. And so we're going to come to numbers, and that's where things are going to kind of fall apart. So what is the purpose of numbers? The purpose of numbers is that 
this book is trying to show how Yahweh dwelt with and pre- dealt with and prepared his people to enter Canaan to take control of the land and to represent him in the midst of the foreign nations. The primary purpose of Numbers is the promised land. Even though the promised land briefly shows up in the book of Numbers, it is talked about a lot because all this is about preparing them, preparing them to trust God, preparing them to know God, preparing them to depend upon God. Because only in those trials, only when they're lacking nothing in the wilderness, sorry, only when they have nothing except for desert can they really truly trust in God. And so the wilderness is where God strips everything from them so that they'll be only focused on Yahweh, so that he can prepare them for the promised land where they're going to be surrounded by tons of pagan nations. And he's trying to equip them to be able to deal with those nations, the negative aspect of that, but the positive blessings of the promised land. That's the primary point of Numbers. Everything now is shifting from a focus on their redemption and salvation, the exodus, to now the, the blessing of the promised land. A secondary purpose of the book is to show the necessity of trusting and obeying Yahweh in order to receive his covenant blessings. God has promised that he'll save them. They didn't have to do anything to receive salvation. However, they have to be obedient if they want to receive the blessings of that salvation. And the same way, and I've mentioned this many times, no matter what happens in your life, mom and dad will always love you. I mean, normally. I know there's always some weird exceptions out there, but most parents, even Jerry Springer parents, mom and dad will always love you no matter what. Okay, But your obedience and your ability to trust them depends, determines how much of a good relationship you have with them. Okay, even if you kill a bunch of people and you're on death row, mom will still come and visit you and tell you she loves you. But that doesn't mean she'll trust you and you'll have a good relationship. And so the, the law does not save, but the law, obedience to it, does determine what kind of a relationship you have with God and how much you are blessed by God, just like in any other relationship. So that's the secondary purpose here, is to get them to realize they need to trust God. There are three major themes in this book. The first one is the promised land of Canaan. I talked about this already, that the land of Canaan is the promised land. And the land of Canaan, so here's Egypt where they came from, and they travel in the Sinai Peninsula. It took them about two months to get down here if this is where Mount Sinai is, we don't know. They spent about a year here, and they're going to shoot up here an 11-day journey to the south of Canaan. And Canaan is everything above this wadi and all the way to the top of the map and between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. And we'll talk about that in a lot more detail in the next book. Um, So they're making their way up there. That's the promised land. That's the beginning of the promised land. God actually promised them all the way at the Euphrates, if you remember that from history class, and Tigris River. Um, But they're not going to get that immediately. They have to trust God to get a little bit and trust God more to get more and trust God more to get more. And he gradually will build the promised land on them throughout these books that are coming. And so that is the focus. The focus is God now no longer focusing mostly on I saved you, I saved you, I saved you, I saved you. And now he's focusing mostly on I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you. 
if you trust in me. Now, unfortunately, the whole book of Numbers is about getting there in the first pretty much 11 chapters. And then for those who know the story, they don't trust God to enter the land. And so they're kicked back into the wilderness for 38 more years because they did not trust God. So unfortunately, Numbers is pretty depressing because they don't receive the promises because of their lack of faith. So that brings us to the next major theme that is going through this book is the need for obedience. The wilderness is where we learn to obey. And the modern equivalent for us probably today is 1 Peter. 1 Peter is really big on trials and suffering and how they train character so that we will trust in God. So the need for obedience. And all through the time, they've already been tested, but the testings are going to get repetitive now. And it's kind of like if you have a student and you give them a test and then they fail the test, you give it to them again and they fail it again. And you're hoping eventually, if you've had this same question over and over again, they're going to get it right. And that's kind of what Numbers is. Numbers, we're going to see the exact same stuff. They complain about no food. They complain about no water. They complain about not being... And, and the question is, can you pass the test this time? You failed it all in Exodus. Can you pass it? And so God is going to test them and test them and test them because he cannot take them into the promised land until they can pass the test. He cannot trust them until they pass the test. And so the third one is the mercy of Yahweh. And this was really seen in the book of Exodus. Because in Exodus, we saw a nation 40 days after making the covenant saying, we will do everything that God told us to do. We swear it. And if we don't, you can kill us. And that was their covenant with God. And they violated it 40 days with the golden calf. And God had every right to kill them, but he didn't. Because he was gracious. He was merciful. And so in a way, God kind of, for lack of a better word, violated the covenant because the covenant demanded that he kill them. And he didn't kill them because he loved them. And so every single day after this is them living on borrowed time. And so he's going to restore the covenant with them at the end of Exodus. And then they're going to keep screwing up over and over again. And even though God will punish them, he's not going to leave them. Because the covenant says that he will not dwell with them. The covenant says that he will not bless them. The covenant says he will not provide for them. But no matter how many times they violate the covenant, he keeps showing mercy, he keeps providing for them, he keeps giving them water, he keeps giving them more food, he keeps taking care of them, and he keeps bringing them towards the promised land. And this is the incredible mercy and love of God. This is why there's no way, if you're truly reading this book authentically, that you could see God as some evil, sadistic God that just wants to kill and punish people, like the atheists try to make him out to be. Even the First Testament, where things seem harsh, you're still overwhelmed by, oh my gosh, he's still putting up with them? We would have left people a long time ago. And so the reality is this is the character of God. Now, what is the structure of the book? Most of the books in the Bible and the last three books that we've covered so far have a topical structure. So the Roman numerals, the books are divided usually into three or four sections at most, and they're divided based on topics. 
So where God focuses on one topic and then moves to another topic and another topic. Or Genesis was focused on families. One family, the next family, and then a family. Exodus was based on topics. Salvation, law, and then the t- building of the tabernacle. Leviticus was based on topics. Okay, Numbers is actually based on geography. The Roman numerals can be broken down into the geography. And so basically there are three major things. It is them at Mount Sinai for the first ten chapters, and that is their geography, Mount Sinai. The next several chapters is Roman from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And so the next several chapters are around 11, chapter 11 to chapter 16, 17. They'll move, it'll all be journeying through the wilderness to Kadesh Barnea. And then the final chapters will be from Kadesh Barnea back up here again. And so Numbers is actually divided by geography. And so as you move from one geography to the next, it's making that point. And this is another emphasis. Because here they're with God. The next point is they're moving towards a new place where God is going to be. And the last part is they're moving away from where God is wanting them to be. And so the geography is important because it's emphasizing that major theme of the promised land. And so God has actually organized the book to show you that they're learning about who they need to be to be with God. Then God moves them towards the promised land. And then because they disobey God, God moves them away from the promised land. And so even the the structure of the book is organized around the promised land. So that is the introduction to the book of Numbers. Now we will get into Numbers.